Welcome. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 24 this evening. If you need a Bible, Stuart's got some in his hand. Just raise your hand and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Acts chapter 24. Just want to remind you that this Saturday is our men's prayer breakfast downstairs at uh, 8.30. And so I encourage you guys to come out for that. And then also this Sunday is our baptism Sunday. And so we're going to be going out to the Nixa pool there and, and uh, have our baptism. And it's going to just be, uh, you know, yesterday it called for rain on Sunday. And today it says no rain. So we're good. It's going to be great. So that'll be, hey, we're going to get wet anyway. So it doesn't matter. But. And then next Wednesday, we're going to be having our prayer, praise, and communion night. I know it's not the end of the month. You might think it is, but there's actually five Wednesdays in um in August, and so um, I'm going to be leaving Monday to take my son Joey to college out in Virginia, and so we move the prayer praise community to this Wednesday, then we'll pick up Acts chapter 25 the following Wednesday for that as well, so uh, that's all coming up next week, but uh, as we start Acts chapter 24, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for this sweet time of worship that we've had, Lord, just exalting your name and lifting you up on high. You are deserving of all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our adoration, for you are great and holy, and we love you, and we thank you for this time tonight. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless our time of study as we look at the Apostle Paul and his life and the ventures that he went through, Lord, and how you used him mightily and the ups and the downs, Lord, uh, well, but you were consistent with his life to be there for him, to strengthen him. And so as we look at this section of scripture, Lord, we just pray that uh, you'd give us this understanding, application, that you'd bless our time together in your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are four chapters away from finishing up the book of Acts. And these last four chapters really cover the final years of the Apostle Paul's life. And really, these last two chapters of the book's Book of Acts, they, they read like a suspense novel. You know, you're exactly not sure what's going to happen next. You're kind of on the edge of your seat. This happens and that happens. And, uh, and, and so it's kind of exciting. Acts chapter 24 now covers a period of a couple years. Acts, uh, Acts chapter 24 is a story of a master procrastinator. His name is Felix. Not the cat, just a man. And uh, he had an opportunity to hear one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, but didn't believe the message that Paul proclaimed. In the end, tragically, he lost his life, and we'll look at that towards the end of the study this evening. But we pick it up tonight with Paul on trial as he appears before Felix, and then next time he'll appear before Festus. So we have Felix the cat and Uncle Festus. Now, if you recall, Paul was in Caesarea. The Jews of Jerusalem had sought to kill Paul, but the Romans had put Paul under protective arrest. And the Lord appeared to Paul in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me in Rome. So we knew that Paul was going to head for Rome. The Lord made that evident to him. Now, uh, we also read that there's 40 men that made a conspiracy to kill Paul. They weren't going to eat or have food until they could kill Paul. And, and Paul's nephew heard about this plot. And when he told Uncle Paul, Paul not having a death wish, told his nephew to go and tell the Roman commander and let him know the plot. Well, the commander heard of the plot. Paul got an official escort, according to Acts 23, verse 23 and 24, with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. Well, along with the escort to Caesarea was a letter that they had with them uh, to this man named Felix, the governor. Remember, Lysias, the Roman 
uh, commander almost had Paul scourged until, you know, Paul says, is it legal to, to uh, scourge a Roman citizen? And at that point, Lysias got real nervous. And, and uh, because it was illegal to scourge a Roman citizen without a trial, if that happened, then he could take on the same punishment that they gave to Paul or even take his life. So in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 23, look at that for a moment. The letter says, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. <laughs> Doesn't mention once about binding him and getting ready to just whack him with the scourge and, and, and uh, just kind of left that part out. <laughs> oh, but I am sending him to you, you know, and listen here. And so they take Paul at Caesarea. He's there to appear before Felix. And uh, in, in the rest of chapter 23, and Felix says at the end of chapter 23 that he would wait until Paul's accusers got there before doing anything. And that really is a, a glimpse of Felix's procrastination, his character. Now we come to chapter 24. Again, Felix is waiting for the high priest Ananias to get there to bring his accusations against Paul before proceeding. If you recall, Ananias had Paul smacked in the face and Paul inadvertently insulted him not knowing that he was the high priest. Paul apologized for that and now he's, he's sent to Felix. And at this point, Ananias, who's heading from Jerusalem to uh, uh to where Paul was at, uh, he's 80 years old, and he makes a 60-mile trip to speak against Paul. It just really shows you uh, this, this old man's this, this hatred for Paul and, and really for Christianity. And he's appearing before this Roman leader, Felix. Ananias has, has hired this slick, you know, high-priced lawyer named Tertullus to make this case against Paul. This is where we pick it up. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 24 uh, through verse 9. We read, Now after five days... Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found that this man, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by with a great violence, took him out of the, our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also ascended, maintaining that these things were so. So we begin with... Uh, Tertullus, the speech with these just flattering words, most noble Felix. I mean, it's just sickening. Oh, you're so great. Oh, I know you hear what we have to say. Just this flattery, just this nauseous. One person has said flattery is just a lie with an appealing veneer. Solomon wrote, flattery, or Solomon wrote a flattery mouth works ruin in Proverbs 26, 28. See, Felix knew that the Jews detested him, yet he listened to the flattery. But then he, he must have gave Tertullus a look because Tertullus says in verse 4, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further. You know, you just see this whole buttering things up. And he lays out these opening arguments to Paul. Four charges were brought against the apostle, three of which were false. One was which I think was probably true. The first charge is in verse 5 where he says, We have found this man to be a plague. Interesting description of Paul. He, he's a plague. Another translation says, 
he's a nuisance, a dangerous nuisance. He's a, a troublemaker. Now, I know it wasn't intended to be. This actually was a backhanded compliment from Tertullius. He was acknowledging the fact that Paul was having an impact in people's lives. He was making an impact. So number one, he's a plague, which he was. And number two, he's charged with being the creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now that was a lie. Number three, he profaned the temple. Again, another lie. And the fourth one, while this actually was partly true, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul was a leader among the believers, but that was about it. Because Jesus was from Nazareth, uh, believers were labeled a sect of the Nazarenes. Now we know that the early church was called Christians, but that was not one that they gave themselves a name. It was uh, actually first used in Antioch. It was in a derogatory name. And so they said these followers of Jesus are like Christians, Nazarenes, Christians. The literal rendering of the word Christian is Christ-like or little Christ. In other words, we thought we got rid of him when we crucified him. Now there are all these little Christians popping up everywhere, these little Christ-like people. You know, today, we, we, we bear the badge. It's a badge of honor. Yeah, I'm a Christian. We, yeah, we're followers of Jesus Christ. So, to turn this, he brings up these four charges against Paul. Again, three of them not true. The first one, the plague, it was really an attack against him personally. I think in the same way, there are those that, that maybe find you a plague or pain because you're, what, you're always reading your Bible at work. You're always maybe praying before meals, listening to Christian music and quoting Bible verses. And, oh, man, that guy's just a plague. That's all he does. Man, he's always so happy around me. You know, just all this, this joy. I mean, what a, you know, just kind of this plague. The second one was a political a- accusation against him, causing dissension among all the Jews. And then that could be the same thing for you and me, kind of a political complaint against us as Christians, as believers, you know. We may boldly proclaim we want a man in the, in the presidential office, a man of integrity to run our country. We, we want someone, that, that are, uh, someone who's against the things that God is against and, and, and who's for the things that God is for. And, and we say that we want to choose a candidate that is closest to that. And we may get harassed and, and judged by that from people and we may get mocked. The third charge was a religious charge against Paul. In the same way, you know, when you guys stand up for biblical truth, you may lose your job, you may get mocked, you know, accused of being a part of, of a cult, you know, just because you chose to choose to go to church more than once a, once a week and you believe the Bible to be the absolute word of God. You know, and we can face the same charges that Paul faced. You know, and, and, and you know, you get people that maybe consider you a fundamentalist, being in a cult and you're dangerous to society, this religious charge against you. Now, it's interesting that when accusations don't work, enemies of the cross will result to bold-faced lies. And that's what Tertullus does here. He says he even tried to profane the temple. Paul had never tried to profane the temple. Quite the opposite. You recall the rumor was that Paul had taken a Gentile into the temple, which wasn't true. But, but Tertullus didn't care about the truth. He wanted to make his point. He wanted to win his point, And he wanted Paul done away with. And we see a lot of that in our judicial system today. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Lawless is abounding, as Jesus said it would in the last days. Then we read, look at verse 9. And the Jews also ascended, maintaining that these things were so. So now he's got the crowd behind him. Oh, yeah, we agree. These things are all lies. But he's got the crowd to it. Yeah, I, I think here's what it comes down to. Thank God our enemies have to make up lies about us because they don't have any other accusations they can bring against us. Isn't that good? I think in the Old Testament, during the time of Daniel, 
And there was the leaders in the, in the kingdom and that at that time were greatly envious of, of, and jealous of Daniel's position and, and authority. And they wanted to trip him up. And this guy, Daniel, lived a, a, such a godly lifestyle that they couldn't find anything wrong with him. And they scrutinized him and they, they watched him. But this guy walked the straight and narrow. He walked the walk. Finally, they recognized they couldn't get him by doing anything wrong. So they had to get him concerning his God. And they knew that every day Daniel would pray facing Jerusalem. So they had the king draft this law that no one could pray to any God except the king. It was decreed Then they knew Daniel would pray. And here's my point. There, there's nothing wrong with the guy. So they had to, to, to lay a trap for him. I think could that be said for us? You know, are we giving the world, those in the world, something to, to throw at us? Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we watch TV at night, we, we see the news, we see them coming against Christians and the, the awful things they're saying. We go, you know what? <laughs> you know, God is, Jesus said it was going to happen. It's going to be this way. Well, now it's time for Paul to respond, to speak. And he does so brilliantly. Paul takes the stand and gets right to the issue. And some people like to call this Paul's defense, but, but I don't see this as a defense. I see this as an offense. I mean, Paul is going on the offense to share the gospel with these folks here. Look now at, at verses 10 through 13. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. As I said, Paul was a brilliant orator. He could have easily talked him out of this mess and, and, and gone home a free man. But Paul didn't see things that way. He saw this as an opportunity. Instead of saying, how can I get out of this mess? He asked himself, how can I turn this mess around to share the gospel? How can I get this message out to a man like Felix? And so Paul begins, inasmuch as I know that you've been for many years a judge of this nation. As far as flattery goes, that's all Paul could say. <laughs> and I like this. You know, uh, Tertullus tried to flatter him all, all up. Paul says, man, all I can say about you, Felix, is uh, you've been a judge for a lot of years. Uh, that's all he could say. Uh, as probably only the nice thing that he could say about him because he knew about him. Uh, then Paul really doesn't spend a lot of time defending himself, just speaking the facts. Look at verse 11. He says, I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me of. Basically, all they said are lies. It's not true. None of this happened. But, now this is where Paul gets right to the point Right to the gospel. Look at verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. 
So Paul is saying, all these charges are false. I'm innocent of the things they've said, but let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. Now, how we need more people like Paul who, who look for those golden opportunities uh, before us every single day. I mentioned Daniel who fearlessly proclaimed the truth of the word of God to Nebuchadnezzar and to his grandson Belshazzar in spite of the potential harm to his own life. Men like Elijah, you know, who were able to, with boldness to declare the truth of someone like Ahab. Or I think of young Stephen who bravely shared his faith at the cost of his own life. And I'm confident that Stephen's testimony uh, ultimately resulted in, in Paul, really, Saul of Tarsus turning to the Apostle Paul. I love how Paul begins in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So Paul is saying, when it comes to being a Christian, a part of the way, that's all been foretold in the Scriptures. See, Paul here is declaring his belief and all those prophecies concerning the Messiah and then his belief that Jesus was and is the Messiah. All the Old Testament prophecies, all relating to the Messiah, prophecies that Jesus literally fulfilled. Places like his birth, Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. He goes on, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Or Isaiah 9, 6, we quoted at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Paul is saying the prophets spoke of, of the Messiah uh, in the Old Testament, his crucifixion, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before the death by crucifixion was ever adopted, God's prophets wrote of it. Paul is saying it was spoken of. And if you take uh, the chance of factors of one man fulfilling these prophecies, you'll find that it becomes a solid proof that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. Paul says, I believe on those things that were written in the law and in the prophets. That's more than you can say for some pastors today. You know, some that are, that are taking portions of Scripture and say, oh, no, that really didn't happen, and, and that really didn't happen. Well, I don't really believe in that. And, 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 and uh, Paul says, no. I base my, my testimony on these things. You know, when Paul would go into a new community, he would actually go into the synagogue and take their scriptures, which is basically the Old Testament, and, and he would point to them the Messiah in their own scriptures and show them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And it can be easily done, you know, in the Old Testament. Jesus put it this way, you do search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but actually they testify of me in John 5.39. Or Hebrews 10.7, I have come and it is written to me in the volume of the book to do thy will, O Lord. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you just see Jesus all throughout the Old Testament, the fulfilling of many prophecies, the coming of the Messiah. Not only that, Paul says in verse 15, I have hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. I like that. He's saying... Yeah, you know, the the Old Testament spoke of Jesus, spoke of his resurrection. The prophets wrote of it. But also, that's my hope. There's going to be a resurrection. And I believe that the first, uh, I believe that what he's speaking of here is there are two resurrections, the just and the unjust. Now, the resurrection of the just, uh, I believe, takes place over a period of time. That Jesus was indeed uh, the first fruits of those that rose from the dead. And as he said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that for the child of God, death is, is the immediate transition from this old tent into this new house. Revelation chapter 19 spoke of it. 
of the first resurrection. That, that's the completion of it. See, the final ones to enter uh, into that first resurrection are those martyred saints during the tribulation period, and they complete the first resurrection. Then Jesus comes back, the world will experience 1,000 years of the millennial reign of Christ, unparalleled peace and prosperity. At the end of that time, the unbeliever will be resurrected and will stand before the great white throne. That will be the resurrection of the unjust. Revelation 20, verse 5 and 6, you can mark this down. It says this, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second resurrection, death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Then he goes on, John does, in verse 11 and 12 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat in it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. And I bring this up because there are those who say, Ah, come on. When we die, we're all going to appear before God. And he's just going to say, Ah, come on in. You weren't that bad. Come on in. No big deal. But that's why God's going to open up his books. Let me tell you. God keeps great books. Every word, every thought, every deed, every lie, every attitude is all going to be there. Now I think in our own sanity, God has made us in such a way that we don't remember how rotten we've been throughout our lifetimes. I think we remember the big things, you know, yeah, that's horrible, but the day-to-day junk conveniently fades from our conscience over time. But when the books are open, however, when people see their lives as they really were, when people are reminded of their sin, they will, for all intents and purposes, they'll condemn themselves. To hell. They'll see that, that, hey, they really didn't live the life they should have. Those that would not accept Jesus' offer of salvation will be held accountable for their sin. I remember a story about a preacher who vehemently pounded his pulpit saying, every member of this congregation is going to stand before the Lord. Every member of this congregation is going to have to give an account for what he's done. Every member of this congregation will be judged. There will be no exceptions. A man in the front row began to laugh and the preacher said, what are you laughing at? He said, I'm not a member of this congregation. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. <laughs> Everyone will stand before the Lord where you'll either hear him say, Depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Paul knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is key to the gospel. That's why he brings it up. That's why he makes it his main point. Verse 21, he says, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. In other words, if preaching the resurrection is what I'm being judged for, then guilty is charged. Because the resurrection is the very center of Christianity. It has been from the very beginning. The resurrection is always the test. Did Jesus die for your sins? Was he raised from the dead? That's the basis of our faith. So Paul, for the moment, rests his case. He rests on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Felix knew that Paul was innocent of the charges that were brought before him. He should have freed him. But you see, he's still procrastinating. Look at verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So, remember, chapter 23 ended with Felix saying he would wait until Paul's accusers got there before doing anything. And now he's waiting until Lysias, the commander, comes down. True procrastinator. Someone said the motto of a procrastinator is never put off until tomorrow what you can put off until the day after tomorrow. I think we all know what it's like to procrastinate. 
You know, your wife asks you to take out the trash and you sit there. You know, you know you got to go mow the lawn and you turn on the TV. That's not such a big deal, you know, when it comes to taking out the trash. Surely it's not going to have eternal ramifications. Your house may smell, but, but you can get away with it. If you don't do yard work, you know, it isn't going to change the course of where you spend eternity, you know, though you may not be able to find your house with all the trash and the outgrown, you know, trees and all that. You know, but it's not the most important thing you're ever going to do. But then there are issues we must never, ever procrastinate over. Of course, I'm speaking to our relationship with God. But see, that's what Felix was doing. Instead of releasing Paul, we read in verse 23, he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now back up for a moment. Felix, he had heard the truth from Paul. He was familiar with Christianity. Verse 23 said he had more accurate way, knowledge of the way, another term for Christians, for believers. It would appear from this that Felix had some understanding of the gospel message. Being the governor in Judea, certainly he was aware of the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Certainly, he heard of the crucifixion. No doubt he had heard of the resurrection of Christ from the dead as well. He knew that the gospel was spreading, but something was holding him back from believing. What was it? Why was he procrastinating? Well, I think when you get the whole picture of Felix's life, you kind of go, okay, now I know why he's dragging his feet. The Bible tells us a little bit about him, but, but history tells us a little more. We know, according to history, that Felix had been a slave and was given freedom by the uh, Emperor Claudius, that, which was a, boy, a boyhood friend of Felix. And not, not only did he give him liberty, but he put him in a position of authority there in Judea. Then Felix gave himself a name, changed his name, which interestingly means happy. Maybe he thought he was going to be happy now from, from now that he was in a position of authority. There's an ancient writer who said of happy, or, or happy Felix, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king in the spirit of a slave. In other words, this man was brutal in the way that he treated his subjects. He wouldn't hesitate to call on a group of assassins who would eliminate anyone who he opposed or opposed him. He got rid of many of his critics or enemies in that way, just through anarchy and brutality and lust were dominant throughout the land under Felix's reign. He was an immoral man, and he was living in an immoral relationship at this time. Look at verse 24. It says, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So now we get Drusilla brought into the scene. This woman is identified as, as Felix's wife. Now, this was Felix's third marriage. This is her second marriage. She was a very young girl. Felix had laid eyes on her, he lured her away, and she went along with the plan, probably thinking it was a good way to climb the social ladder and in that position of greater importance. She left her husband to marry Felix. We read that Drusilla was Jewish. Felix was a pagan. Uh, Drusilla was brought up in the faith of the Jews. She had heard of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She knew of the one true living God who had given us commandments to follow. But obviously... She had gone out of her way to flaunt the laws of God in the lifestyle that she was living, her with her and Felix together. So here's Paul now standing before these two people who are living an immoral lifestyle, living as rulers who were cruel and brutal. Now, if Paul would have just kept his mouth shut, he could have been home for dinner, just released. But he doesn't do that because that's not in Paul's nature. You know, he's doing what he's been called to do, share the gospel in hopes that this wicked couple would respond to the message of salvation. Look at 24 again. We read that they sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith. Verse 25. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So you kind of see the picture of what's going on here. It appears that Felix had some interest in spiritual things because he kept Paul around. And you've got to give Paul some credit for not pulling punches. But he comes right out and says it in verse 25. He talked to them and reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Three things Paul talks to them about in, in really sharing the gospel. He first speaks on the subject of righteousness. No doubt he covered the righteous requirements of the law, and demands of the Mosaic law. Being Jewish, that would have spoken to Drusilla's heart. When Paul spoke of the unrighteousness of man, he probably spoke of the unrighteous relationship that Felix was having with Drusilla. They were not living in, in a righteous relationship. But I also know that Paul did not only speak to them bad news, I'm sure he spoke to them the good news about Christ's righteousness. I'm sure he told them if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, old things have passed away, all things can become new. I'm sure he would tell them Colossians 3.3, 3, if you're in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ and God. I'm sure he would have told them of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When he talked of his righteousness, Paul would share that. Number two, Paul spoke of self-control. If there's anything Felix was lacking, it was self-control. Just in the way he was ruling and, and, and the relationship together. You know, today, man, we need self-control. No one wants to talk about self-control. They'd rather talk about self-fulfillment. And the reason no one wants to talk about self-control because no one wants to be responsible for their sin. See, Felix and Drusilla, they didn't, they didn't practice self-control for the mere fact they had most been married before and they were just giving in to whatever their fleshly desires wanted. I think the same thing is true today. Now today, today, you know, people have numerous sexual affairs. You know, they don't call it sin. They call it, oh, I just have a sexual addiction. I have this disease. It's amazing how people buy into that nonsense. You know, when someone is killed from someone driving under the influence of alcohol, we don't use the, the terminology, oh, you know, that, that he's, he, was, he was drunk. You know, we don't use the biblical terminology, a drunkard. Oh, it's an addiction. They're not responsible. It's the disease of alcoholism. Let me tell you, it's the first disease that, that, that has been bottled and sold with a catchy commercial to market it. The bottom line is there's no self-control. We need to quit making excuses and accept the fact that we're all sinners with sinful desires and passions. But again, I'm sure Paul told him the bad news and the good news when it came to self-control. That you have a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. One of the fruits of the Spirit is, is self-control. Sin no longer has power over us because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then the third thing that Paul spoke, spoke about in verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now I found, and maybe you have as well, when you're witnessing with someone, when it looks like they're pulling their eyes back, and they're just kind of, you know, getting impatient, they're no longer listening to you anymore, they're not really willing to hear anything more from you, I feel it's time to warn them of the judgment to come. You know, and, and, and that's what Paul does here. I'm sure he said to them, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what is done, either good nor bad. I'm sure he told them that we'll all stand before God, who according to 2 Timothy 3.4.1 will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and, and his kingdom. Maybe he even quoted Hebrews 9.27 and is appointed for men to die once but after this judgment. Paul just laid it out all on the line 
before him. Righteousness, self-control, judgment. This is what's going on. This is the gospel. This is what you need to do. Now hearing all this, how does Felix respond? Again, verse 25. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Felix was afraid, it says. In the King James, it says Felix trembled. It's that same word to describe an earthquake or to shake uncontrollably. I don't know if you've ever shaken uncontrollably, maybe from cold weather, maybe you've just been, been, been scared, you know, or, or something going on. Uh, Felix here was visibly shaking. He was freaked out. But here's the thing. He wasn't freaked out enough to do anything about it. He was convicted by the Holy Spirit. But instead of, of surrendering and turning his life to Christ, he tell Paul to go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. See, Felix was left with the choice. Respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Or to walk away and to live under condemnation. Let me tell you that there's a difference between conviction of the Holy Spirit and condemnation. Conviction always draws you to God. Condemnation draws you away from God. And so Philip was con- convicted by the Holy Spirit and he had a choice. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 4 7, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But see, that's what Felix did. It just hardened his heart. He was shaken up. He was trembling. He was convicted. He knew what he needed to do. And instead, he sends Paul away. Just procrastinating. And listen, because he procrastinated here, it just made it easier for him to keep doing it each time he saw Paul. Look at verse 26. We read, Meanwhile, he, this is Felix, also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So now he's looking to make money from Paul, thinking someone would, would pay his bail to keep him from being a prisoner, but that never happened. And he conversed with Paul, but I'm sure it wasn't about anything spiritual. It's all about money. So do you think, Paul, someone's going to come and, and maybe pay to get you out of here? You know Why? Because Felix's heart was hardened. It's been said, repetition dulls truth's potency. The more you hear something, the more immune you can become to it. You know, you hear a song and, you know, maybe on, 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 you know, on, on your iPod or whatever and, and you go, I gotta have that song. So you spend a dollar twenty nine and you download that song and you, you proceed to listen to it a hundred times. Oh man. Before long you're going, okay, I'm kind of sick of that song. It was good, but now I'm kind of sick of it. No, that's the same way some people are with the gospel message. They hear it. Oh, I know I need Jesus, but then their heart begins to harden it and you, they know it's true. They accept it intellectually as Felix did, yet they don't respond. When a person does that, the heart just gets harder and harder away from the truth that would have softened it. The most difficult people to share our faith with is those that have heard the gospel and now become hardened to it. See, the Bible warns of being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin in Hebrews 3.13. That's where Felix and Drusilla ended up hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Finally, we read, look at verse 27. But after two years... Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So, what happened to Felix and Drusilla? This we know. We know that a riot, according to history, a riot broke out in Caesarea between the Jews and the Greeks. When that happened, Felix vented his frustration by ordering the Greeks to go throughout the city and kill all the Jewish men, rape the women, and take all of their possessions. 
When Rome caught wind of that, Felix was then kicked out of power and replaced by this Portius Festus. Felix then lived out the rest of his life in disgrace until eventually he committed suicide. As far as Drusilla goes, two years after this event, she went on a shopping spree in Europe when Mount Vesuvius erupted. She was caught in the lava flow and killed at the age of 21 years old. Felix and Drusilla both had an opportunity to hear the gospel. They both had the opportunity to, to, to respond to the invitation of the gospel to make a decision. And they procrastinated. As we close this evening, I think this is a lesson not just for non-believers. I mean, it's a, definitely a lesson for non-believers. Man, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, man, you need to give your life to the Lord. Don't procrastinate. Judgment is coming. You don't know how much time we have left. But I think this speaks to us as believers as well. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction on our heart, maybe in an area in our lives, and we have a choice. Now, maybe we're tempted to do something wrong and, 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 and we, we, we tremble, we, 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 maybe we fall. The second time the temptation comes away and, and it still kind of bothers us, but not as much as it did the, the first time. Then the third time kind of bothers us, but, but even less than the fourth time we've given in to the temptation and it doesn't bother us at all. And that's the danger. We need to recognize sin for what it is, repent and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers us. Our prayer should be, Lord, whatever is in my life that, that shouldn't be there, convict me that, that I may repent. And Lord, that I would not procrastinate. That I would do it, Lord, as soon as my heart is convicted of it. Don't let our hearts become callous to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, next week, prayer, praise, and communion in the following Acts chapter 25. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the account that you've given to us of, of the Apostle Paul's life and the different reactions, Lord, that came as he shared the gospel. Lord, we recognize that the gospel has not changed and people's reactions has not changed. And so, Lord, help us to take these things and use them for your glory. Father, help us to expect lies to be told about us, Lord. Help us to expect the persecution that will come, Lord, to not be surprised by it. But even in the midst of being harassed and persecuted, Lord, that we would stay focused on the truth of the gospel, the good news. Lord, that you came, you gave your life for us, that no matter what sin that we've ever committed, Lord, you paid the price for it to bring us that forgiveness, that hope of heaven. Thank you, Lord, for your love, for your grace. I pray, Father, that you'd give us just a blessing remainder of our week, Lord, a, a, just a time that you would use us, Lord, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our families. Lord, give us opportunities to bring glory to your name in all that we do. Thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.